You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. The Slave Ship from Space. The nearer of the slaves stepped a little closer to the two men, and by the twitching of its eyelids and the increased mouthings of its lips, it was apparent that the creature was highly excited. A high, variable moaning sound came from its throat. Curiously, boldly, it looked Clee all over, and then it did an amazing thing. Seeing the blood on the back of his neck, it swung him around, put its writhing lips to the still-bleeding wound, and dog-like licked it clean. The gesture was altogether a friendly one. Another of the slaves of Xantra went up and did the same thing to Jim, and the two men looked at each other with relief. This meant that the removal of the discs had not been understood by the creatures. It was with growing hope that they allowed themselves to be conducted from their cell, through the sloping corridor into a doorway they had passed coming in, and down a curving flight of steps into a large room below. They were in the space at the very bottom of the ship, for, through the redly glowing transparent walls that curved on each side and below, they could see the infinite deeps of star-filled space. Three other slaves were there, waiting for them. At the far side of the room, their guide pointed to two small stalls with a partition between, which they understood were to be their beds. They were across from a long row of similar ones. "'Making us at home,' commented Jim. "'I wonder if they'll serve cakes and tea.' "'Wish they would,' added Clee. "'I'm getting damned hungry.' We've got work to do, and we've got to do it quick. His eyes swept the room, looking among the sparse furnishings for something they might be able to use as a weapon. He saw nothing, but the sight of the lump on the neck of a nearby slave gave him an idea. I wonder if these slaves would fight for us if we removed the lumps from their necks, he said musingly, his eyes narrowed. I wish there was some way to talk to them. He looked from one to another with the animal men, making a circle about them, wondering what to do. Then quickly he made his decision. Jim, I'm going to try. It'll have to be done by signs. I've got to make them understand and get their permission. At once he raised his hand to get the slave's attention. Then, raising both fists high in the air, he shook them violently, at the same time gritting his teeth, working his face, and growling in animal anger at something overhead. He was trying to show the slaves his anger at Xantra above. The slaves fell away from him in surprise and alarm, not understanding what he was trying to put across. He continued his demonstration, hopping about furiously, but still without result. Then Jim cried out. Touch the place on your neck! Clee did so, and the result was startling. Quickly, they ran around the circle, throaty growls of anger, Every slave raised a hand to the lump on its neck. Evidently, they had all felt the awful punishment pain of their master. Hardened by this, Clee extended his pantomime. Stopping his demonstration of anger, he put one finger on the wound on his neck and fell to the floor, writhing in simulated pain. As he lay there, groaning, the easily aroused animal men moaned with him in sympathy. Then Jim, inspired, stepped into the act, taking out his nail file, he bent over the prostate, Clee, and pretended to cut into his neck, making a great show of removing something and throwing it away. 
and as he did so, Clee jumped to his feet and grinned and hopped about the room in a wildly exaggerated affectation of joy and relief. Then he stopped his acting and carefully showed the slaves the wounds and healed them during his next, by fingering movements doing his best to make it clear they had removed something from there. And then, taking no chances, he repeated the whole pantomime, Jim at the proper place acting his part as before. When at last he stopped and looked around, he was overjoyed at his apparent success in putting across the idea. All over the room, the animal men were repeating his show in its various phases. Now I've got to take the disc out of one of them, said Clee, and it's a mighty dangerous thing to attempt. You see how easily their emotions are aroused? If I hurt too much... I know, responded Jim, but we've got to risk it, for if we succeed, we've got a good bunch of tough fighters at our backs. We need every bit of help we can get. Carefully, they made their few preparations, and Clee, again by acting, indicated to one of the animal men what he wanted to do. He seemed to make himself well understood, for without hesitation the creature lay face down on the floor. The others all gathered round as Clee bent over it, and Jim scanned their faces closely for any sign of suspicion or resentment. Seeing none, he told Clee to start, then held his breath, an awful suspense. The disc appeared near the surface, and with a quick slice, Clee made his first incision. With the cut, the prone slave bucked and snarled. Clee murmured soothing words to it in English, and, as the creature quieted down, made another cut. Again came the bucking and throaty protest, and this time, to Jim's dismay, he saw in the bestial faces of the animal men around them a sympathetic swing of emotional protest. A little more now, and Clee would be able to take out the disc. But would the slaves restrain themselves until then? Again Clee allowed the brute body under him to calm down. Then, as he was about to cut once more, from somewhere above in the spaceship came the piercing scream of a woman. Something was happening to Vivian. Clee half started to rise, to run to her aid, but he forced himself to be reasonable. Weaponless, visible, he could never hope to rescue an invisible girl from someone he couldn't even see. He was on the point of making valuable allies. In just a few moments more, he decided to hurry through with the job he had undertaken. All below had heard the scream. The circle around him was shifting uncertainly, and peculiar sounds were coming out of the brute's twisting mouths as he bent again over their fellow on the floor. Clee's hand was trembling like an aspen leaf as he prepared to make the next incision. He was completely unnerved, and with the utmost efforts of his will, he was unable to control the nail file, and he had to hurry. He sliced as straight as he could at the bleeding lump. The slave moved, and the point of the file slipped deep into the creature's flesh. At that, with a snarling growl, the brute, below, arched from the floor and flung Clee sprawling. From all around the circle came menacing growls as the bleeding animal man lumbered to its feet and came after him in a definite attack. Jim, not at that moment the centre of their attention, pushed one of the slaves in the way of the charging brute, and the two of them half fell. And before they could recover their balance, Clee was on his feet, making after Jim to the steps that led up out of the room. Up! came Jim's shout. Fast! We've made them enemies! Above them on the stairs was descending another slave, innocent of what had transpired below, and the two men bolded over in their haste to get past. 
all the way to the bottom of the stairs that tumbled, and that delayed pursuit for the moment needed by the earthmen to gain the upper corridor. Quickly they darted through the door. There was no way they could lock or block it, so they had to run on. Taking to the left, they found themselves in the little entrance room, and from there their only course led up the corridor leading to Zentra's quarters and the control alcove. Arrived there, the two men found the door ajar, but they paused irresolute before it, hardly daring to go in. They had no choice, however, for behind them, only fifteen feet away, came the van of the animal men. They pushed through the door, closed and bolted it, then, wheeling tigerishly, surveyed the room. They saw no one. They were not relieved at this. Santra might well be there. He, as well as Vivian, would be invisible to them, and he had every opportunity of striking first. Even then he might be preparing to deal with them, if he was in the room. The slaves were not attempting to break in the door to get them, and this was ominous. It argued that the master was there. The two men stood motionless at the door, peering intently at the rug in search of tell-tale footprints. Then Cleve touched Jim's shoulder and whispered faintly in his ear. Clothes! Smell it! Jim nodded. Slowly, on guard every second, they advanced to the alcove. They saw no sign of anyone there, though the odour of clothes was stronger. Jim grabbed a chair and held it ready, and Cleve followed suit with a small, heavy cabernet. Cautiously, methodically, the two men began to reconnoitre the large room, examining foot by foot the rug, in search of the faint clear prints that would reveal the presence of their enemy. The smell of clothes was beginning to dull their brains a little. Cleese saw the danger in this and whispered to Jim, Faster! Xantra may be insidiously anaesthetizing us. We've got to find where he is. Quick! They hastened their search, feeling more and more sure that Xantra was close by, and not till then did Clee remember that he had a way to discover Xantra's location. Jim heard him curse under his breath, saw him put down the tabernacle and take out his tobacco. And he knew at once what he was about to do. He went close to Clee to guard him with his chair against possible attack. The face of Clee's wristwatch was glowing brightly. It took only a second to find with the package of tobacco a spot which cut the dial's unnatural glow. As they found it, the skin on the two men's bodies prickled all over. The line from the dial to the package of tobacco, if continued, would reach a spot on the floor not six feet away. And looking carefully there, they could barely make out, in the bent hairs of the rug, broken outline that might have been made by a prone finger. As they prepared to jump, they heard from that place a low sigh, and just before them appeared the distinct print of a human hand. Zantra was rising, and coincident with this, a sudden banging at the door told them that the slaves at last had started to break in. As one man, the two earthlings leapt on Xantra. He would have to be taken care of first. When they had fastened on his rising body, they punched and pounded it furiously. Though their enemy was undoubtedly only half-conscious, the sudden attack aroused him, and he resisted vigorously. But then, Clee made a lucky connection on what he felt to be his jaw, and the invisible form in their arms went limp. Get a rope! Wire! Anything to bind him with! Quick! yelled Clee. I'll hold him! The pounding at the door was increasing ominously as Jim dashed over to the work table. Rapidly he looked for something suitable, and in a few seconds was back with a length of stout wire 
which they quickly wrapped round the wrists and ankles of the limp form Clee was holding. As the wire touched Xantra, it gradually disappeared from their sight, but their fingers reassured them that he was tightly bound. Then they were at the door, which, shivering and bending from the battering without, showed signs of giving in. With Herculean efforts, they dragged a heavy divan over and wedged it tightly against it, then added other furniture in a tight supporting pile. But the door of some light metal was not built to stand such a siege, and it was buckling further inward with each blow being dealt it. More and more plainly, the two men could hear the triumphant snarls and howls of the animal men. Frantically, they ransacked the rooms, looking for what they thought might be weapons, but found none. They looked at each other with dismay. It was only a question of time, minutes, before the slaves would break in. What could they do? In that tense moment of indecision, a low, weak voice reached their ears, a woman's voice, and one they remembered well. Vivian! cried Clee, and ran to the alcove from whence it seemed to come. The girl's next words brought them understanding. Clee, Jim, it's Xantra. He's willing the slaves to break in. He's lying bound on the floor, but he's conscious. Clee ran to where he had left the invisible man, cursing himself under his breath, being an utter ass for not having guessed this. His groping fingers quickly found the squirming Xantra's neck, and he had begun to throttle him into unconsciousness when Vivian called out, No, don't! That won't stop the slaves. They've already been given the order. We've got to make Xantra stop them. Here, drag him to the work table. I've got something! Wondering what the girl was about, Clee relaxed his grip on the invisible man's neck and complied. But he suddenly understood, and Jim too, when he saw coming through the air the pair of thought-sending helmets. He had a way of communicating with Xantra, of course! He saw the larger helmet lowered to rest over the head he was still holding, then soft hands placed the other over his own. As it settled down, a great crash sounded in the other room. The door had given in. It was still held almost in place by the tightly wedged furniture, but that would not hold the animal men long. Hurry! cried Jim. I'll stand by the door! And he was already on his way to it. Cleese saw the small panel on the table above, saw the knob on it turn. He caught Vivian's excited voice. Tell him to stop them, she said, or else, or else. He dies, finished Cleese, viciously thumbing into the air where the invisible Xantra's neck was. With all the intensity he could muster, Clee concentrated on one simple, strong thought. He hardly heard the triumphant cries of the slaves as they felt the blocking furniture to give for their efforts. All his energy was being expended in the will to get his thought across. Tell those slaves to stop breaking it or you die, he commanded. The noises at the door continued. Either Xantra had not understood, or else he was stubborn. He repeated his command and threat, and still the crashing sounds came to his ears. Desperate, he played his last card, and unconsciously his lips formed the words of his next mental command, so that it was understood by the breathlessly watching Vivian. Tell them to stop, he willed. No more air till you do. And with these words, his fingers closed tightly over the other's throat. The sounds of the door continued. For a moment, the invisible form between Cleve's knees writhed violently, and then suddenly, almost magically, a silence fell over the whole room. Cleve had 
forced his will on Xantra. He had made him stop the slaves. And just in time. These fingers relaxed a little on the throat of the man beneath him. He turned and said, Quick, Vivian, find that anesthetic. A moment later it was pressed into his hands. Say when, he told the girl, and held it beneath the nose of the helpless man. Xantra's head at once fell back, and he heard Vivian telling him to stop. He pulled away the bottle, corked it, and stood up. Well, that's that, he said. For a moment he was silent. Only the noises made by Jim and strengthening the barricade at the door could be heard in the room. Then he said earnestly, I wish I could see you, Vivian, right now, but that'll have to wait, I guess. A low laugh came from the place where the girl was standing. A hand touched his arm, and he found himself being conducted into the alcove. Vivian laughed again, said teasingly, What a stupid expression on your face, and commanded him to shut his eyes and keep them shut. He felt something being attached to his wrist, heard a coarse hum that quickly rose in pitch until it passed the range of hearing. He was caught up in a surprising exhilaration. He heard the hum again, sliding down and down in pitch, while every atom in his body felt a sickening vibration that grew ever coarser. Then suddenly he felt normal. The things on his wrists were removed, and Vivian told him he could open his eyes. He did so. He had guessed what she had done, but he was surprised, nevertheless, to see the straight, slender, attractive girl who stood before him. You see, Xantra used this on me twice, the latter time to restore me, so I'd be able to see him. I watched him carefully, the girl explained. He gazed at Vivian in greatest confusion. Why, she was beautiful. He grew conscious of a growing need to say something, and eventually the asinine thing that left his lips was, Yeah, you, you aren't bad looking at all. The girl turned away blushing, and it was Jim who relieved Clee from his awkward situation. He came swinging happily through the alcove portal to suddenly stop in blank surprise. Clee had disappeared. It did not take long to restore Jim to his normal self. And Vivian and Clee laughed at the great sigh of relief he unconsciously gave when he found himself able to see the girl who before had been only a disembodied voice to him. Clee explained to Vivian what had happened to them down below, and she in turn told him how she and Xantra had come to be unconscious when they reached the control above. I found the anaesthetic by its smell soon after I went to Xantra, she explained. I tried to conceal it in my dress, but Xantra saw me and tried to take it away and in the struggle that followed I guess we both got anaesthetized. When I came to, I saw you and Jim trying to hold back the slaves, and I could see Xantra on the floor, conscious, which you couldn't, and knew he was ordering the slaves on. So I told you, and here we are. You want to see Xantra now, she added. Clee would never forget the sight of the bound figure that met his eyes on the floor in the large room. The clothes were odd, the figure was much that of a normal man, though the shoulders were more sloped and the head much larger, but it was the face, its expression, that held him. Unhealthy, leprous white was the skin, and there was not one hair, eyelash or eyebrow on the whole head. The closed eyes lay in deep caverns surrounded by a thousand fine wrinkles, which crisscrossed all over his face in every direction. The face and head were freakish, monstrous, and yet, somehow, over it rested an expression of infinite wisdom and calm. He lay bound and still and unconscious, at the mercy of men far below him intellectually, 
this man from another planet. Clee could not help but compare him to a stoical man staked out on an anthill to die. We'll have to keep him unconscious with the anaesthetic, he said at length. He's too dangerous to monkey with. And that means we've got to find out how to run this ship, take it back ourselves. Leave that to me, said Jim, feeling quite chipper. Never saw anything I couldn't drive. Where is it? Cape Cod you want to be let off, Miss Gray? Okay. This is my joyride, and I'll see that you're delivered at your front door. More than two days later, again at night, a few lookouts on the lonely fishing craft off Cape Cod might have seen a pinpoint of cherry red appear off the eastern horizon and make a wide arc up to the heavens. Its course was erratic, and it made sudden angles as it drew near the zenith. It glowed more and more brightly as it approached, until it disappeared from sight overhead. For some minutes it was invisible, and then, suddenly, only a few hundred yards overhead, it emerged into view again, a great sphere of faintly glowing cherry-red crystal. Rapidly, with dangerous speed, it descended straight for the shoreline of Massachusetts Bay, and as it neared, its erratic side-to-side -side dashes increased rather than diminished. Down at a wide angle it came to the beach, then... When it was a hundred feet away, it sheared suddenly out to sea. There, only a few feet above the water, it darted to the side once more, and fell and skipped along the water at dizzying speed. But it did not go far. With its first contact with the water, a great crack split the night air, and a little further the ship split into hundreds of small pieces, all of which slid along the surface of the water until, when momentum lost, they came to a stop, and slowly sank from view. A dozen figures were left threshing on the surface, and one by one they disappeared, till there were only four left. Then one of the four sank from sight. Slowly but steadily the remaining three drew near to the welcoming shore, and at last stood dripping and tired on the sandy beach. For some time they stood there in silence, reviewing all the incredible adventure they had been through, as they gazed off across the water to the place where the slave ship had gone down. But one of them, Jim, had something to say, and at last it came out. Well, I told you I'd drive you safely back. Clee, his arm around the waist of the exhausted Vivian, smiled and answered, But I don't see Vivian's front door. We're close enough, Jim snorted. <laughs> After all, I did hit the earth. This concludes The Slave Ship from Space by A. R. Holmes.